Well, hi, everybody. Welcome back to the Beaver Tales podcast, episode two. You're listening to it right now. I'm Josh Warden. I'm going to start off this podcast by breaking your heart and then building you back up again. Now, our guest today, as you saw when you clicked on this episode, is Alexa Cerna, the greatest kicker in Oregon State history. There have been some great ones, and he might not be the last specialist on this podcast, but he is the greatest. The Lou Groza Award winner in 2005 is the best kicker in college football. I'm going to bring you back to 2004 for a moment, a game that defined his career, and I say defined in past tense, because in the end, it did not define who he was. It was a piece of his career and a, a footnote that cannot be forgotten and, and we'll say should not be forgotten for reasons we'll get into this conversation. But nonetheless, this moment only makes his story better as terrible as it was. But this is not the end of the story, but merely a necessary beginning. 2004, LSU hosted Oregon State to begin the season in front of 91,000 fans. LSU having coming off a national championship from the year before, coached by Nick Saban and his coordinators were Jimbo Fisher and Will Muschamp with quarterback Jamarcus Russell, not to mention Matt Flynn, Dwayne Bowe, Joseph Adai, was playing Oregon State in Baton Rouge against Derek Anderson and Joe Newton, an Oregon State program in the second year of Mike Riley that had come onto the scene just a few years prior with the Fiesta Bowl year. So Oregon State was building a name for itself as a program, but this LSU win would be huge. Problem was, Alexis Cerna, a redshirt freshman walk-on kicker, had missed two extra points in regulation. They go to overtime, and Joe Newton catches a pass to essentially tie it up pending the extra point, and Alexis Cerna pushes it wide right. Oregon State loses 22-21. So OSU misses a big chance at a program-building win back in 2004, but here's the crazy thing. That's not what we remember Alexis Cerna for, at least not completely. I mean, most people do remember that as part of the story, but it is not the finish, and we'll uh, we'll see why. We'll talk with Alexis and all the things he's learned and what he did after that point in his career. He would go on to become a two-time All-American. Before we get to that conversation, I'd like to mention Convoy of Hope. I'm using this platform, this podcast, to give some recognition to local businesses in need of some free advertising as well as charities doing amazing work. Convoy of Hope, which does work in 172 countries, has helped over 300,000 children in their strategic feeding program, is launching a campaign to provide 10 million meals across the United States in response to COVID-19. If you just Google Convoy of Hope, you're sure to find their website and you can donate there. I'd also like to mention the newest tax consulting firm in Corvallis during tax season, which has been extended, by the way, giving a shout out to the owners, Renee Tornberg and April Larson, both of them OSU grads. Renee specializes in helping small businesses make informed financial decisions, not just during tax time, but all year long. April focuses on personal tax returns. She has three kids at OSU who have gone through Oregon State, so she knows how to maximize your education credits. Their phone number is 541-760-3585. You can find them online, tltaxconsulting.com. Dot com. And the last one I'd like to mention is Benny's Donuts. I asked Alexis, are there any businesses uh, I should give a shout out to that you like to mention? He says, I live in Albany and they deliver. I love Benny's Donuts. And so giving a shout out to an aptly named Oregon State related business. That's Benny's Donuts. All right, here is the Lou Groza Award winner and Beaver legend here in the Beaver Tales podcast, Alexis Cerna. Alexis, thanks for joining me on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. 
Thank you for coming on. It's a crazy time. We'll kind of start with your playing career. I think a lot of Beaver fans should still be familiar, but we'll run through some of the highlights and then kind of get into what you're doing now. You're kind of the perfect person to talk to because this is on former Beaver <laughs> players, what they've done since then, and now you're working for those very players as director of Beyond Football. So we'll, we'll definitely get into that. But let's start with your playing career. You came to Oregon State coming up from from California, born in Upland, which is kind of a beaver pipeline. I know Jalen Moore was from there, played the last couple of years. I think John Reese, you may have overlapped with him, but you grew up in Fontana. We know about your career the four years, but where were you at coming in, your expectations of this is what my OSU career is going to look like? Did you think it would turn out the way it did? Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, it was when I was actually coming out, I actually didn't get my invite uh, until, until about June, uh, end of June, beginning of July. They called me up and said, hey, do you want to walk on? I was like, yeah, I was actually, uh, I had a couple of visits with a couple of junior colleges that I was going to attend. Uh, I had a D3 offer, uh, but I told them I wanted to hold off to see if I can get a Division One offer. Uh, and then uh, ended up, they called me up that, uh, like the day before I was going to go for my visit and said, do you want to walk on? And I said, yeah, let's do this. Um, understanding that they had a senior kicker, uh, Kirk Ilanimi was the kicker at the time. Uh, he was going to be a senior. And it wasn't going to be an opportunity for me to get going there and compete. Uh, funny thing is that looking back at it, I, I had really high expectations and ended up working out, but I'm like, Oh my gosh, I, I probably should have pumped the brakes a little bit. and thought about it a little bit more, but I, I looked at it as I was going to go in there. I was going to compete as a walk on uh, and earn the scholarship and earn the starting job. That's the way my vision was from the start. Uh, and then walking in on campus, one of the first things that I noticed is they have Valley Football Center. You have the, the mill uh, training table up there. And they had some All-American pictures up there. There was only about 13 or 15 All-Americans up there. And uh, the first day I walked in there, I told myself, I want to be up there one day. Uh, so I started setting goals pretty early on and started checking out the record books and realized that um, if I played all four years, I could probably break majority of the record. So from, from the get-go, I did have that mindset. Um, but a lot of us do coming into uh, Division One. If you don't have that confidence, you really shouldn't be in the room. But that's the reality of this. All of us, our athletes are pretty confident. Um, but it's just a matter of being able to get that opportunity to actually do that. You end up becoming a two-time All-American, so you achieve that. One goal you didn't have initially, I don't think, was the Lou Groza Award, because I remember you telling me how you learned about the Lou Groza Award. <laughs> to kind of run that story again, how did you first realize what that award meant? So everybody was in the dorms and playing video games, so we were they were all playing the NCAA game. So I was like, all right, here we go. I, I got to get the NCAA game, and started playing it. Uh, obviously, I wasn't starting, so I had to create myself in the um, in the game, and uh, Kicked a lot of field goals, probably more than I should have, and ended up winning the Lou Groza Award on the game. And I was like, what in the world is this? And uh, when it actually looked it up and was like, oh, this is actually a kicker award. And I was like, man, that would be awesome uh, to win it. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's how I ended up learning about the Lou Groza was through the uh, EA Sports NCAA game. That's pretty fantastic. Kind of prophetic, really, to win it in a video game and then win it in real <laughs> life in 2005. What what edition of the NCAA football would that have been that you were playing? Sorry, what was that? What what edition of it, you know, each year, what year oh. of NCAA? Gosh, that one would have been 2004. Um, it was Carson and, Palmer on the cover there, if I remember Yeah, right. 
Yeah, and then two, I think 2005 came out, and I was hoping that I would actually be the, the kicker, and I actually wasn't. Um, wow. That was, that was a little disappointing. It was a little fire for me as well. Um, but uh, just recently, my son, my oldest son, he's six, um, so I pulled out the old PS2, and uh, I actually went out and bought the um, 06, 07, and 08, which I'm in those three games, uh, and so it's been pretty fun to be able to say that, hey, I was in a video game, uh, did get paid out for that as well through the through that little lawsuit that happened, uh, but it was, but I, I, I could have done without the mo- uh, money, because I was just super excited to be in a video game like that's a kid's dream like I didn't actually have to create myself we can create ourselves but I didn't have to do that I was there there was a little uh, number 13 short kicker uh, the only frustrating thing was that when I went to myself to go make tackles on kickoff it started running really really slow uh, but <laughs> and I think I have a little bit more speed than what they had me at but you know my my kicking uh, rating was really high so that was awesome when you created yourself in the 04 version, did you max out and go 99 kick power, 99 kick accuracy, or did you try to, you know, be a little more subtle? How did you do it? I don't remember, but I'm guessing that, well, cause you always had to balance it out. You had to, if you're doing certain things. So I'm guessing that I had to uh, put in their kicking and uh, accuracy, the power and accuracy at 99. And then I, I, I let off on all the other things. Maybe I might've put speed in there a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> what was the conclusion? I'm, I'm guessing you were referring to the, the Ed O'Bannon, the likeness thing. Did they, what was the finality to that? And did they send you a, a, just a, a check, a, a letter explaining? And what, what, what was that like from your experience? Yeah, so um, you had to sign up for it to, to get put into the, the class action lawsuit. Uh, and then after that, they would send you little resumes or um, little questionnaires to fill out and They'd ask you what years did you play uh, and where you're from, all the information. And then they would actually look at it uh, and base it off of how many times you were actually in the game, how many years. Um, and so I was there for three years. So I got it. So I was on the game for three years. So I got quite a bit because of that. So, um, so that's how they balance it out. So I've had teammates that were like a lot less than me because they only had like one or two, but you know, so that's how they did it. They kind of, so you just had to keep following with them and, just, and then a check just ended up coming in the mail one day. So they send you a check if you played. Do they send you a check if you created yourself in 2004? <laughs> I'm, I'm just joking. <laughs> then I'd get a check no. too. <laughs> no, I was, uh, no, they didn't. I would have been at him four years then, but no, they, they didn't send it for creative one. Well, let's talk about the real 2004 season a little bit where you're actually on the field. Even that year, you actually were a Lou Groza semifinalist, yeah. um, which makes it that much more surprising that they wouldn't put you in the game for 2005 when you, <laughs> when you really won the award. You ended up winning a scholarship after the season. And if I remember correctly, it was kind of unsure if you'd even be able to stay at OSU had you required to stay a walk-on. Do you think you would have played four years at Oregon State had you not gotten a scholarship? Um, no, I was about $40,000 in debt and I really didn't want to put myself in any more debt after that point. I was already looking at junior colleges that I would go back to, uh, back home, uh, so I can live with my mom and then go to school and kick there. So I, I was kind of having a plan. I, it was something that was in motion because I, it was, there was a lot of uncertainty around that. Um, but yeah, it, it ended up working out that I did get to stay for all four years, which I'm very, very grateful for. 
you were a redshirt freshman that year, 2004. The first game's LSU. They're the national champions coming out and your first playing experience on the road against LSU. And, and we know the story. There's the, the PATs and all that. When people ask you about that, and I, I'm kind of curious how people approach that to you, because I think most people, when they think of Alexis Cerna, they remember the good parts. They may mention LSU, but then they usually would bring up, but the guy who went on to win the <laughs> Lou Rose Award and all that. So do people ever come to you and I hesitate to use the word like a jerk and they say, hey, why'd you miss those three APATs? Or, or do people usually focus on the good when they ask you about your career? Usually it's when they bring it up, it's more of a transition into uh, like, you know, the way you bounce back. That was very admirable. I haven't had any... Uh, probably more on social media than anything uh, where, where you're not face-to-face. Usually face-to-face people are pretty nice. Uh, I don't know if they're saying stuff behind my back. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but in face-to-face, they're definitely nice. If Twitter was around in 2004 and you were on there, do you think you would have gone on there and responded to people or would you have stayed away or what would have happened after that 04 LSU game? Uh, you know what? Uh, we were having a conversation about this in the offices the other day. Uh, I actually got a ton of emails during that time because your school emails public uh and so these emails just started flooding in of just people just talking all types of crap and uh at that time i didn't think about it i responded um to a lot of them but you know really what what one of my main responses was you know i hopefully you feel good about yourself i'm only 19 years old i'm paying for school um and it's a game so hopefully this like at least your message probably hopefully makes you feel better but just know that I am a human being. I am 19 years old. And usually people responded with apologies after that. And just like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. I shouldn't have done that. But that was, that was just the start of social media um, at that time. And so looking back at it, I guess I probably might have responded to some of them. Because I am, I, I do, I, at that time, I am kind of a fiery person. I don't like people coming at me. If I, a lot of people didn't know this, but I talk a lot of crap on the field when guys are talking crap to me. So, uh, <laughs> And so uh, I probably would have done it, but I, I, I would say pretty early on in my career, I had a, my mentor told me, um, I posted something on my on MySpace and he asked me to take it down and he said, hey, you know, you got to realize that it's a reflection of you. There's a lot of people looking at you. So if they see that, they might have get a, get a wrong perspective of who you are as an individual. So I actually had to go back and take it down. That was probably end of my freshman year. Um, so it was a it was a learning experience that there, there's a lot of power in that really as athletes you do end up having to bite your tongue a lot um, you just pretty much got to take it so it would have been interesting if I would have responded or not at that time <laughs> it's it's pretty funny how it's a myspace post and those sorts of things which dates it a little bit but in a in a perfect way because that's so you know perfect for that time frame it's easy to look back and notice what went so much better in the aftermath, which I'm sure makes it a lot easier. Well, you'd think to, re- to remember that game in particular, because you know all the success you had afterwards. But in that moment where you didn't even have an immediate chance to redeem yourself because you didn't get a chance. I mean, you kind of lost the job. I think it was John Daly, if I remember right, came in and kicked for a little while and you ultimately won the job back later in the year, but it was kind of, touch and go for a little bit there so in that moment what kept your head up what kept you still practicing staying on the team was it you mentioned your mentor was it Mike Riley was there any other people who inspired you at that time and kept you hopeful so it was uh it was a really good learning experience for me um especially when I started talking with younger kickers nowadays um 
one of the things leading up to that moment, because I was in competition with John Daly leading up to that week of the LSU game um, before I actually earned the starting job, was that um, I was kind of kicking scared. Uh, the, the concept behind it is that when I was kicking, I was kicking to not miss. Um, and because I wanted the job, I wasn't going out there trying to kick to make it. Um, and so there's, it, it doesn't seem like much of a difference, but it's a huge difference in the mindset. Uh, and so leading into the game, I wasn't really prepping properly um, mentally because of that. I realized that now was that because I was more worried about missing uh, rather than making that that carried over into the game a little bit because um, I wasn't preparing the way I should have been. And then after that, it actually lit a little fire into me and was like, man, I don't, I don't have anything to lose here. I got to go after this. And I started kicking to make the kicks. Uh, and then I started taking that mindset into the games. And that's really how it all just took off from that point was that that mindset, it, it flipped the switch that following week uh, leading up to the Boise State game. I didn't miss a kick in practice. I was hitting everything down the middle. I was confident. Um, and Coach Reed at the end of the, the week pulled me aside and said, hey, we're going to start John. He's like, but just be ready at any moment if we need to throw you back in there. I think that week put confidence into him that I could do it um, and that I was willing and able to fight back for it. And so that's, that's kind of what set from that game. Um, I wish it didn't go down that route because that would have been a huge upset for Oregon State beating LSU. Um, but that's the way it ended up working out for me. And it was a good learning experience being able to now like talk with the younger kids and saying, Hey, you know, you got to go out there to try to make the kick. You can't try to miss. You can't be worried about that because it's that negative mindset that ends up taking over. And then that kind of cascades and it's hard to get out of that. You would go on to make 144 consecutive PATs, set the record. You never missed another one again. After that LSU game, you win the 2005 LaGrosse award two-time All-American. The thing that stands out to me, there's an example in Justin Cahoot's career also of the idea of redemption. He has more of a single game that comes to mind, that Arizona game where he misses a PAT that would have tied it in the fourth quarter. Then they get the ball back and Coach Riley sends him out there for a field goal to potentially win the game. He hits it and Oregon State wins 19 to 17 down in Tucson. So that's more of a, you know, a missed PAT, but he, he redeems himself you know, 20 minutes later of real time there in the fourth quarter, you have a redemption story that took a longer time. It was more your whole career arc that ultimately we look back and say, hey, wow, he never missed a PAT again after that and the Lou Gross Award the next season. With the idea of redemption, both in, in, in your close friends with Justin K, who this is going to sound like a weird question, but I, I ask it to make a point is, was it almost good that you missed the three PATs against LSU to allow yourself that career arc. Whereas if you had never missed a PAT, that's also amazing, but it's a different story. You won't necessarily have the same opportunity to share with other kickers or athletes the same way. Was there not just a silver lining or at least that, but was there some, it almost ended up being more positive than negative, at least in a way. So um, I'm a very optimistic individual. And I love telling my story. I love mentoring. And looking back at it, I am very, I, it's weird. Like it's, it's weird to say, but I'm, I'm grateful that it did happen um, because I, there was a lot of um, life lessons that I learned from it. Uh, and there was a lot of relationships created because of that. Um, I got to um, create a relationship with Austin Pierce during that time. I get to tell my story. I remember there was a golfer. Um, I, I was reading an article. He, he ended up having cancer. 
coming back from it and getting back on the PGA tour. And somebody asked him about that and he said it was a blessing and they were like, why, why do you consider that a blessing? And he said, because now I get to share my story with other people going through the same thing and be uh, a little gleam of hope. And so that's the way I look at it. It was a blessing that I get to share my story with uh, all these other kickers, um, people that are going through tough times, like athletes that are going through tough times that had a bad game. I can share my experience with them and I can relate with them because it's a very lonely place. Uh, and there really isn't much people can tell you. It's just, you gotta, you just gotta be there to support them and say, Hey, you can bounce back. Um, but yeah, mine took a little bit longer than, than Justin's. Uh, but no, I'm definitely, I do, I do think it was a blessing to do uh, to have that. And, you know, honestly, the, the Groza was the year that I won and I beat Mason Crosby. It was the closest voting in like Groza history. It might still be like the closest one. I think I only won by like six or seven points votes essentially. And I, I think being able to show my bounce back from that 2004 to 2005, I think that definitely helped me out to be able to win that award as well. Um, so it's hard to say, like, I, like, I wish it didn't happen, but uh, because I know there's a lot of good things that did come from it. You brought up Austin Pierce. I want to ask just briefly about him. He's from Spokane. He was fighting cancer and something about your story really stuck with him and became a fan. You got to beat him after I think it was the Washington state game. And, and I think you had his initials like on your, on your uh, Jersey somewhere you written out on your sock or something like that. And when you got to meet him and talk with him, did it stand out? Like I couldn't relate to this kid unless what happened to me. Right. Yeah. So um, I'll do have a little bit of background story. It was leading into the New Mexico game and, and he ended up sending me a letter. I got a letter in the mail and it was kind of eerie. My, my kicking coach mentor were talking the day before and he said, you know what, this is just a game. There are people out there um, fighting for life and death situations. And the very next day, this letter comes in, uh, open it up, picture falls out. And it's just this frail looking kid. And it basically says, hey, I've had some rough days and um, I found ways to get back up. The reason why he knew about that game is that him and the doctor would put quarter bets on games and they ran on that game and he picked Oregon State and the doctor was like are you sure like LSU is like heavy underdog or, or like heavy they're supposed to win and he's like no I'm gonna stick with Oregon State the Northwest team uh and then after the game um the next day the doctor came in and said hey do you want to write him a letter and I, I appreciate that because um you know we were a distraction for each other uh really what it came down to was that he was going through some tough times and, um, and just having a little bit of positive connection with a collegiate athlete uh, meant a lot to him. And being able to, to see somebody like him just fighting and uh, striving, essentially, and figuring it out, he was a great kid. Um, but, yeah, it, it was – I put the A and the P on my thumb because the, the concept I ended up getting the kicking uh, kickoff job back that day was that when I put the ball on the kickoff seat – I would see his initials and then I continue that even when I played up in the CFL, I have some player cards uh, from the CFL and you can see the A and the P on my hand when I'm kicking. Um, and it was a neat little uh, relationship to have and we still stay in contact. He's actually in Texas right now. He, were, he ended up um, getting a scholarship to play wheelchair basketball uh, out there, University of Texas, Arlington. He played uh, for the professional uh, wheelchair team, the uh, Rolling Mavs out there, which is basically the, the Dallas Mavericks. They won a couple of championships. So it was awesome to be able to see him go through life and being able to see these and um, he's cured, I guess, now. So it's been longer than five years, so it's no longer remission. Um, but 
his sister because Abe had such great memories from Oregon State. His, his sister actually went to OSU, got her degree there at OSU, um, and now she's up at OHSU as a nurse. Um, so their, their family's amazing. A lot of people, a lot of parents end up getting divorced because of situations like that, and their family got closer. And so his parents, Mark and Janelle, they're, they're role models for my wife and I, just seeing how they were able to stick to, together and really show us what a family's about. And so it was, it was a blessing to be able to meet that entire family. I did not know there was a league for wheelchair basketball, but now I've got to go check it out and watch. I, that's once that it's available on ESPN or somewhere, I, I got to watch that. But yeah, that's amazing. Most of the time when there's examples of, of kids interacting with athletes, it's the kid who gets the fun story and the athlete spends the time to, okay, sure. I'll, I'll humor you and write, you know, give you an autograph or whatever. But for you in particular, it seemed like, mutually beneficial if not you were the one benefiting as much or more as Austin as, as weird as that s sentence sounds yeah it was uh it was it was definitely beneficial because actually he taught me a lot um because he was going through some really really tough times um like when they had to to come to the conclusion that they were gonna have to amputate his leg he was okay with it and had terms with it a lot sooner than what his parents were um but to see his maturity going through this at such a young age, it, it was just, it was just amazing to see. And it gave me strength in certain areas. Um, I looked at, I, it's weird to say, but he was a little kid, but I looked up to him as a role model because of the way he handled adversity. Uh, and so I look at my adversity, I'm like, man, it's nowhere near what he was able to handle to stay positive through that all. Um, it, it was amazing to see and just his journey and his story. It, it's, it's awesome to see his journey and story. He definitely has a comeback story that's even greater than what mine is. Yeah. I think he was only, what, like 12 at the time. So for him to hear, hey, we're probably going to have to amputate, and to him to have the foresight and maturity to say, all right, you know, this is something that got to happen even before his parents. That's that's not easy, yeah. but that is that is amazing. Yeah. Um, so the one last thing on your playing career, and then we'll transition kind of to what you're doing now at OSU and in your career since. Um, did you ever have an opportunity to to play professionally in the NFL? Was that a goal? You went to Winnipeg and, and had three years there, which I'm sure you have a lot of memories from. But what what was kind of the transition like once you finished at OSU? Yeah, so um, I was considered top three kickers coming out pretty much on everybody's board. Um, and really it was – I thought at least I was going to get a camp shot or whatever it was. I thought I should be playing. Uh, I went to the senior bowl, only two, the best two kickers they consider to go to that. I went to the NFL combine um, and, you know, I was prepped and ready to go. Um, but when draft day rolled around, I didn't get a call. Uh, there were some things that happened during uh, that time from March all the way to draft day. They actually ended up um, eliminating NFL Europe at the time. And so what that ended up doing is that they reduced the camp roster size by 10. So that was 320 positions just out the window in 2008 uh, coming into camp. Coach Reed at that time, my special teams coach for my first three years, was with the Dallas Cowboys. Um, and he called me up after and said, hey, like, what's going on? Are you, are you getting calls? It was like nothing. And he was like, man, he's like, honestly, he's like, I would – I would love to bring you in here to Dallas, but because of the reduction of camp roster size, we're, um, we're not able to just bring in a few people here and there. And um, he's like, so unfortunately I can't bring you into, into Dallas. And that would have been a dream of mine. I was a huge Dallas Cowboys fan. And I, at least leading up to that, I was like, man, at least I'm going to get to get signed by the Dallas Cowboys, go through camp for a little bit, wear that star and 
that was going to be a dream of mine. Um, and it never came to fruition. And it was, a, it came to the drawing uh, board moment. And the funny thing was that I called up my agent and was like, Hey, I want to give the CFL a shot. Uh, I want to give it a crack. And, uh, my, like I said, we have confidence. I pretty much thought I was going to walk into this league and be able to play and, um, because it's like, oh, it's the CFL. Like, how tough can it be to get into this league? Uh, so I went to a workout with um, – they had one up in Lake Oswego for the BC Lions. And you have to kick and punt. And that was another thing that was uh, very fortunate that uh, Kyle Loomis actually quit on the first day of camp. And then I was the starting punter that year. Uh, I was terrible, uh, <laughs> but I got a lot better towards at the end of the year, and I started figuring out things. Uh, so uh, it, I knew knew I was prepping for the CFL, so I started punting a little bit. I had actually didn't punt from basically December all the way up until about uh, May, because I wasn't going to punt in the, in the NFL. Uh, and so I started practicing again, and uh, and went out to the workout, and I kicked really well, and I punted really well, and which is like, all right, well, I'll just wait to see what happens. And they actually threw me on their negotiation list, which is each team in the CFL, they have 25 uh, players that they have the rights to, um, that if they become available, they can sign them. Or if they're not available, they just basically hold them on to the list until they need them. Uh, nobody in the CFL wanted me. And it's like, it's just like toddlers. Um, nobody wants to play with you. Like they don't want to play with that toy until another kid's playing with that toy. Uh, so that's what ended up happening in the CFL was that they saw me on the negotiation list. They saw that I was freshly coming out of college. Um, and so that workout kind of caught wind. And then a couple of teams wanted to remove me from that list. And so the rules behind it is that you have two weeks to get signed um, by the team that has you on the negotiation list, or they have to trade your rights. Or after that two weeks, you just basically, um, you go into free agency pulling in. And the BC Lions were offering pretty much every team uh, trade rights for me, like second second round picks, third round picks, trying to figure it out. Uh, they offered every team but Winnipeg, the team that ended up signing me. But there was a couple of things that ended up happening. Mike Vanderjack actually came back to the CFL. He signed with the uh, Toronto Argonauts. And then they actually traded Noel Prefontaine to the Edmonton Eskimos. And those were the teams that kind of needed a kicker and trying to figure it out. And after that got figured out, it, it ended up being left up to Winnipeg. After I came off the list, Winnipeg called me up and signed me. And I was flying out, I think, June 8th or something like that. Um, it was quick. It was very, very quick. Uh, and I actually ended up going up into the Winnipeg and competing against Troy Westwood, who was 18, 19-year veteran. Um, Sam Pulescu in Oregon State, uh, former B, went up there, competed against them, uh, played a few games, and then ended up getting released, sending back to the state. Kirk Ilini went up there, competed against them. Uh, Troy ended up beating him out. I had a, one of my best friends, Aaron Barrett, went up there to CFL. He got a couple of games, and then uh, Troy Westwood ended up winning, uh, sending him home. And so here I was, here basically to beat the own like team in Winnipeg. And fortunately, I ended up getting the opportunity. They ended up going with me. Um, which was kind of a little interesting situation because this guy's a, a, a living legend in Winnipeg and here I was replacing him. Um, but yeah, that's how I kind of got my start in the CFL. I went through my first two seasons there. I had a second season, had an uh, outstanding season, broke, broke the club record. Uh, and that was probably my opportunity to come out and try to test the waters for the NFL. Uh, I actually found out later on that I actually, uh, the, Atlanta Falcons called my agent to have a workout, but I actually re-signed back up to the CFL. Um, 
I was getting married in January and just wanted a little bit of stability. Um, weddings cost a lot and I needed a signing bonus. Um, <laughs> so I re-signed back with, uh, with Winnipeg so I can have some money to live on for the next six months. Um, thinking that I was going to be up there for 10, 15 years and that three months into it of the season ended up having a little bad streak of missing a couple of kicks. Uh, um, got down mentally was probably the biggest thing. And then uh, it ended up getting released in August and then coming back and just, I, I was done with professional football at that moment. It's stressful. Uh, there are times when you're playing week to week. I guess look at it as if you have a job and you don't know if you're going to get released that week and you're having to deal with that. I did that for about 18 weeks my first year. And then going into it my third year, I did that a couple of times and it was stressful, um, but I still had the ability and still wanted to, to pursue um, or people wanted me to pursue more than actually I'd wanted to. But at that time, the USFL uh, opened back up. And so I went to a couple of workouts. And my last workout was actually in uh, UC Davis with Sacramento, the Sacramento team. And uh, I ended up going 12 for 13 on the day for field goals. Uh, I hit a, I hit a, what was it, a 51, 54, 57, 60. And I hit a 63-yarder off the crossbar down the middle. Uh, that was my only miss was the 63 yarder off the crossbar down the middle. Um, and I remember driving home that day and um, I'm religious. So I prayed to God and said, Hey, you know what? If that was my last go at it, uh, I'm okay with it. Um, if that's not, this, this is not what you want for me, then I'm fine with it. Uh, I'm okay with hanging up the cleats and walking away. And a couple of weeks later, got word that they were going to go with somebody else. Um, I think they ended up cutting later on in the season. I won't get too much into that um but you know I, at that moment I just said okay I'm I'm fine I'm fine with it I'm done I'm gonna hang up the cleats and just move on after that um timing had a lot to do with it like I said when I was coming out they had the uh, NFL year fold and then the second second go around at it uh NFL actually ended up having their uh strike at the time so it was uh it was like I had other plans God had other plans for me and so you know, I look back at it, I was very grateful for everything that I went through. And it was an absolute blessing to be able to say that I actually played professional football. Um, like I said, originally in the beginning of it, that I thought I was just going to walk in the CFL. After I looked at it and realized once I got up there, um, I was the, there wasn't very many American kickers. Um, and so it's really, really hard because they only allow 25 that were called imports um, American players on the team because they want to keep a lot of Canadian players so they can keep the fans engaged that there's Canadian natives in there. Um, and so it, it's definitely tough. In my second year, I was probably one of the first times to have a uh, just a strictly kicker. That's all I did. I didn't punt. Um, so I wasn't, uh, I was an import just doing one kick and one specialist job, which was really, really rare. So that was actually pretty neat to be able to say that that happened as well. But it's tough. It's really tough. They, uh, during mid-August, they called it the airdrop. Um, they had the NFL cuts, and then they'd bring in all these guys from camps, and these guys come in, and they're thinking, like, oh, I'm just going to walk all over these CFL guys, and then they end up getting smacked and sent home uh, because it's a different game. Uh, and these guys, they play really well. They're really great athletes. The way I explain the CFL, uh, once you get into it, it's very much like collegiate, uh, collegiate football where they're going all out, uh, a lot of great players. Um, but with NFL talent, some of them are just undersized or a little bit older, whatever it is. But these the, the guys that were up there were, were really great athletes, and I had a blast being able to play up there.
Not everybody can finish their career on a good note and feel resolution about it, feel like they're moving on to the next thing. And it's amazing to me how each point in your career, whether it be in your college career, athletic career, or even now professional career, how things you couldn't control that were difficult still led to something better. You talk about the LSU game and how that kind of led to a learning process and relationships you wouldn't have otherwise had you talk about the CFL and things like you couldn't have controlled that you were punting at OSU. You never thought you'd be the punter, but Kyle <laughs> Loomis quits. And then that makes you a, a more valuable CFL product for something that you wouldn't have expected or you didn't even want to do necessarily at Oregon <laughs> State. And there's another example I'm thinking of as we talk about your professional career. After you moved on from the CFL, you're in your mid-20s. And I remember you talking about wanting to become a, a police officer and you were going through the whole process and you kind of expected to start working. I think it was in Corvallis, but something fell through. Again, another example of something not working out and you had to learn from that and respond to it and move on to something. What was that story of how you thought something was going to happen and then it didn't? <laughs> yeah, so I applied in August of 2011. I applied for the Corvallis Police Department. Um, I never had a uh, thought or passion that I was going to be in law enforcement. But I absolutely, I, and I still do just absolutely love Corvallis. Um, and I love Corvallis. And uh, it was a community that I was willing uh, to protect and serve. Um, and so I was willing to apply for the Corvallis Police Department. Uh, and I went through the process. And just with everything, um, with whatever's worth doing is worth doing well. I went at that full bore. Uh, my thought process going into the physical agility test was that I was going to blow it out the water so bad that they would be talking about me. Um, and that's exactly what I did. I trained for it. And uh, it was funny because the other guys were going, they, they went first. And then towards the end of it, they started like getting winded um, and dying down and everybody's cheering for them. Well, I started going um, and I had actually been training for that. I actually specifically trained for it. And then when we got towards like my last lap of doing it, I was like, I got, I got a ton of energy. I was actually pacing myself a little bit, probably too much, but I was like, you know what, let me go with this. And I sprinted the last part. The building was completely silent. There were probably about 25 people in there and it was just dead silent because it was like, what's going on here? Um, and I had a buddy that was working for the police department at the time and he like messaged me. He was like, man, like, I don't know what you did there, but everybody's talking about like what you did with the physical agility test. So I already put my foot uh, in the right direction, right from the get-go with the police department. We went through the interview process, got all the way to the end. There was about a thousand applicants and I was uh, one of one of two that actually got to sign a conditional hire as long as you pass your psych test and physical. Went up, did my psych test, did my physical. Um, and then on February 8th, 2012, um, I got a letter, which is actually my birthday. So that's why I remember the exact date. But I got a letter that said that they were no longer continuing the process and that I could reapply in a year. And at that moment, I didn't have anything. Uh, I was roofing at the time uh, just to pay the bills. My wife was going to school, uh, getting her teaching education. Um, sorry if I get, it, it's always still a little bit emotional thinking about that moment, but uh, that, that was rock bottom for me. And not knowing Life's way better. I'm sorry, but, okay. <laughs> but not okay. knowing, uh, not knowing where my life was going to turn and what it was going to happen with it was, was tough to handle. Um, 
And it was funny. We had on Sunday, I was actually supposed to be talking to some volunteers that were making calls to donors. And I was looking forward to tell them, Hey, I'm, I'm going to be a Corvallis police officer. Uh, and so Friday that I got the letter and on Sunday, I'm telling them that I didn't get it. Um, and I remember telling them that, you know, coach Riley, one of the things he always said, just never blink. Um, and it's one of those things where it's like, okay, you can't worry about uh, what's happening at the time. You just got to keep pressing forward. And that's exactly what I did. Um, and ended up finding my way and landing on with Sharon Williams. Uh, but but yeah, I've had I've had a lot of down moments in life, but that's one of my strong traits of me is being able to handle adversity and just keep pushing forward. And it's it's an absolute blessing to go through every single valley uh, in life because there's always peaks and it always goes back up. But it was rock bottom, uh, February 2012, and to see where I am now. It's even emotional to think about that. Um, it's, ex it's extremely exciting to be able to be where I'm at. That was your 27th birthday and you get, you get that news and it's at least a third, if not more times in your career where you have a, a low, you, you miss three PATs against LSU, which only heightens the value of the Lou Groza award and the, the longest streak ever of PATs made. You don't get an opportunity in the NFL like you thought, which maybe made the CFL that much more valuable because it did give you at least an opportunity to play professionally. You, it doesn't work out with the police department, which makes that much more valuable. I'm sure your relationship with your wife and then Sherwin Williams and that job became that much more of a, of a blessing to have that. And so each of these stories, it seems like you of all people have a, a very intimate knowledge of what it means to lose something and then value the the blessing after that even if it didn't come when or where you were expecting it to be and you you learn that again and maybe you'll you'll have more experiences in the future who knows hopefully not anything too dramatic but maybe it will be but you seem to know that very well yeah yeah um being able to handle adversity is is, is big um but you know even talking about all those moments um the lsu um NFL, going to the CFL, then in like the USFL, all those down moments. Um, I will say one of the probably toughest times uh, for me was it was my very first uh, experience of adversity as an adult was actually my redshirt year. Um, getting homesick, um, dealing with culture shock, being out here. Uh, my uh, my high school was 85% um, Mexican and then coming up here as a minority that was my first time experiencing that uh, and I wanted to actually uh, transfer out at that moment and I remember talking with my dad at that and he said uh, I was hoping that he'd tell me just come home but he didn't uh, he told me you know just think of it this way if you can get through this you can get through anything in life and that was true that was a very very tough moment at, for me to be able to handle be away from family and friends and everything um, but being able to get through that early on in my adulthood, um, my early adult life, it just carried over in every situation. I just knew I would be able to get through it. I want to briefly touch on your family and then finish up with your job now as director of Beyond Football. You got married about 10 years ago. You're either coming up on or just hit your 10-year anniversary, I believe. Just hit it, yep. Just hit it. And uh, you got two sons now. You mentioned a January wedding. I'm guessing you came to California. You, you didn't get married in Winnipeg in January, <laughs> did you? <laughs> no, no. Um, a lot of things had to evolve around football, so we ended up going down to Southern California and getting married. Okay. That would have been about the coldest wedding you could ever have in Winnipeg, <laughs> but I'm glad you, you got to come to California. 
Julia, I believe, is your, is your wife's name now. How did you meet Julia? I think it was at OSU, right? How did you meet her? Yeah, so uh, my first year at OSU, I was living in Finley Hall, uh, and she was actually an RA in Finley Hall. Uh, she caught my eye pretty early on and kind of admired her throughout the whole entire year. And, and it ended up being the last day when we were moving out of the dorms. Uh, we went out to Cold Stone, uh, kind of went on a little date and got to know each other. Uh, I knew at the moment she was the one, uh, but I don't think she was really into me at that much at that moment. Uh, but, you know, I was, I was pretty persistent later on. We, we kind of talked through the summer and kind of fell off, but then we started talking again once the fall. I actually went home for the summer. It's not like it is now uh, where you, stick, you have, pretty much have to stick around for football. So I went back home, trained, and then came back in uh, the fall, and then we started talking again. And uh, our first date was actually on Halloween. So this past Halloween was 15 years uh, together, and then uh, this past January 16th was 10 years uh, in marriage. And so yeah, we met her at Finley Hall. Uh, she actually started running cross-country and track when they reinstated the program in 2004. Um, so we're definitely a, a, a Beaver United family uh, of athletes. Uh, it was it was definitely a blessing to be placed in Finley Hall to be able to meet her, uh, and and so it's it's been awesome. I've been able to to go through a lot of ups and downs with her in life, uh, and she's been a great partner. You've got two sons uh, now, the two of you got them at home and spending a lot of time with them now during <laughs> the, the lockdown, basically, and you made sure to to give them a, a proper beaver upbringing. And I remember you mentioned, I think your your son, even at the age of like three or four, knew the whole beaver fight song, I believe. It seems like they, they know the Civil War, where what side of the line that they're on. <laughs> Yes, ducks is a bad word in my house. Um, <laughs> yeah, they are diehard Beaver fans. Uh, they're probably bigger Beaver fans than what we are, what Julie and I are. Uh, and so they have, like, uh, the other day they were playing, replaying some classic Beaver football games on the Pac-12 network, so they were watching those ones. Uh, they absolutely love everything Beaver sports. Um, they play in sports all day. They're they're naming off other teams or they play together. And so they'll be like, Oh, it's Beavers versus Cal or Beaver versus the duck. And so they, they, they definitely love the Beavers. They have a uh, little kid play helmets and uh, they're both rooms are actually Beaver rooms. Uh, so yeah, they're, they're diehard Beaver fans. That's great. Let's close up with what you're doing now. You, you were with Sherwin Williams for a while and then you have an opportunity to, to come over back to OSU, uh, an organization that Mike Riley and Scott Spiegelberg essentially started beyond football, essentially helping establish the, these players with a future and helping them know what's to come after football academically and volunteering, that sort of thing. So share first a little bit about just what that is and then and then we'll get into your role but what is beyond football and how does it help Oregon State student athletes yeah so uh, beyond football is really it's right there in the name it's beyond football as you know that only everybody knows the percentage is about two percent actually make it professionally it's a little bit less than two percent I believe um, but I always tell people you know when when you're sitting in a room full of a hundred after you have a hundred football players and you tell them that only two of them are going to make it hundred uh, percent think they're the two. Yeah. <laughs> and so that, that's why uh, I, I don't let them know about the percentages. I obviously they know about it. I remember sitting in the room when they told us that I remember thinking, man, who's my other teammate is going to make it professionally like I am. So I don't expect them to have any different mindset. 
I don't want them to change that mindset because, uh, you know, the reality is if you don't believe that you shouldn't be in the, in that room. Um, and so we want them to believe that they can make it professionally. Um, but you know, there's little things that one of the things that I learned was that I, I pursued a degree and our mindset going into it as football players is that I'm going to play football. I'm going to go play in the league and then I'm going to fall back on my degree. Um, but the reality of it is that it, it's just a degree and there's a lot of other preparation moments leading up to that. Um, and so we're really just trying to change the mindset of, you know, I'm pursuing a career, not a degree while I'm here at OSU. Um, and just having them do some career exploration. Um, and, you know, it's been getting creative recently with the, the whole COVID crisis. But, you know, there was a lot of things that I wanted to implement that now we're actually kind of getting forced to implement, which I'm really excited about. Um, and we're getting, it's, it's pretty exciting to see the direction that we're taking it. But, you know, we go through resumes. We, um, in September, we launched the Beaver Athlete Network, um, which is strictly for our start, uh, current and our former student athletes. Um, they have over 300 employers that are actively hiring student athletes. Um, actually, actually, how I got my job with Sherman Williams was connecting with Sherman Williams through the network. Um, so now we have our own personalized network and I get to put all the information for our current student athletes. Their lives are busy. There's a million things going in a million different directions. This is a way for us to house it all in one spot. They know exactly where to go. And then uh, it actually leads into the alumni piece where uh, a lot of us felt this. Uh, I don't care what generation you went through, but the reality was that you left campus and you felt like there was no resources after that point. Um, you didn't have anybody to turn to, and that's where the Beyond Football program stepped in, um, and that's where uh, the Beaver Athlete Network is actually looking to fill some uh, even more voids because obviously you want to stay connected, um, help them continue working and getting positions, uh, and then after that, keep them connected to the university uh, and having that passion. So one day when their kids, uh, they have kids that they're coming to OSU if they're great athletes as well, or if they're just coming to students because their parents had such a love for OSU. So really it follows them. This, the great thing about the network is that literally once their eligibility is done, it flips a switch and it actually switches, uh, switches to the alumni page. Um, so this is a lifetime site for them um, that they'll be able to continue to log on uh, and get a lot of information, whether they're events, reunions, and we'll be, able, we'll be able to stay in contact with them. Um, but, you know, one of my big goals as, with, uh, as beyond football directors, make sure that our players are placed. Um, so I look at my 2018 class, uh, 11 of the 12 seniors are actually placed. The only one that uh, he's still pursuing football. So that's why he's not placed, but he'll be fine once that time does come. Um, so we're excited about be able to guide people. And then I've had, I've had a lot of athletes that have, uh, they're three, four years out. They've come and reached out to me and just using the network. Not everybody, you're not born to know how to network. <laughs> You don't come out, you don't go to college. You actually don't even learn how to network while you're in college unless you kind of fall into it. Um, but that's kind of one of my specialties. I love relationships. I love connecting with people. Um, and the greatest thing about being at Sherman Williams is that I was a sales representative. So I don't have a fear of reaching out to people. Uh, I did a lot of cold calling. So I can make a lot of connections very quickly in the right places. Um, and that's basically what I do is just uh, being a connector for them. And uh, guiding them along through the process and holding their hands because there's a lot of things that they don't know. There's a lot of things that I ended up learning along the process. And so we make sure that they know all the protocols so that they're giving themselves the best opportunity um, to, to get a position. 
you know, the way I look at it is that uh, once they leave, I want to make you money. So it's either they're going to be making money professionally or they're going to be making money with the company because they got a career. That's really what my goal is to make sure that they're making money, um, making it as easy as possible, that transition, because they put their blood, sweat and tears into this uh, university. They've spent a lot of time doing it. Um, and I appreciate that. I, I, I definitely appreciate that as an alum, um, knowing what I went through. Um, while I was here at OSU, so I, I definitely appreciate them doing the same things and putting all that time and effort. So I want to be able to help them as much as possible. I want to be able to take care of them. Um, so really, that's that's kind of the beyond football in a nutshell. Yeah, that's great. Do you have any success stories of specific athlete who came in, didn't think they need academics at all, and you managed to really work with them and see the value or a guy who you placed well in a specific career connected, any specific guys that come to mind, even though you're, you're still kind of getting started, only been a couple of years back in Corvallis. But any yeah, so I can talk a little. Um, one of the stories I like to tell about is Adam Sozman. Um, and I, I guess it's not necessarily – the 2018 class was a pretty unique class. A lot of them actually didn't uh, train for pro day. They were just like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm not pursuing this. I'm getting out into the workforce. Um, so it was neat to be able to work with them and kind of guide them along the way. Um, but, like, Adam is, is a great example. He was going to, he was going to get his MBA. Um, going into the summer of 2019, uh, he was finishing up school, and he – reached out and was like, hey, I'm looking for a position uh, at the time. And Keith Pinky, one of my teammates, worked at the Target Distribution Center here in Albany. Uh, so I reached out to them and uh, we went on a tour and got to talk with them and he applied for that. Um, during that time, actually, Adam got engaged. Um, he's actually getting married this spring or summer coming up. Um, but they, him and his uh, fiance found out that they were going to have a baby. He didn't have a position at the time. Um, and so they, I, I'm Yes, and they were a little bit panic mode, um, but they went through the interview processing. Uh, a week after finding out she was pregnant, he ended up getting the offer at, at Target Distribution Center. Um, so looking at it, though, like that's the story that's, that's awesome because, you know, without the resources and the connections and like Keith Hanky being able to guide him through that process, um, it, it's amazing to think that his trajectory of his life and his family's life could have been completely different without Beyond Football. Um, being able to guide them and support them along that way. That was, that's exciting. Um, another story is like Yanni. Uh, Demi, um, he moved out to Chicago and he just didn't, wasn't at the time really looking. He was looking, but not really looking full hearted. Um, and that one was actually a tough one for me because trying to keep in contact with him during the time and him not reaching out that couple, he went a little dark on me for about two, three months where I wasn't getting any response. And, uh, November was just like, dude, tell me you're alive. Like, <laughs> at least send, send me like a like on my on my message, like something. Show me that you're okay. Um, and he was like, hey, call me tomorrow. So we talked, uh, and it was at that. It got to the point now he had a little bit of sense of urgency, and so a lot of the stuff that we had talked about, he went out and did that, uh, and he ended up landing a job within a couple of weeks. So he's now he's working at, at a company now doing that. Um, so it was exciting to be able to work with him. Jonathan Willis um, was actually in Oklahoma and was moving back to Oregon. And so we, uh, he let me know that. And I got, ended up getting contact with Dan Clovis, one of my teammates up at United Rentals. Uh, and he went through the interview process with them. And now he's working up in Portland with them as well. Uh, there was medical redshirt, uh, or actually a guy that medically retired, Zach Lucas. Um, 
he hadn't even been around the program for three years. I found out that he was uh, graduating uh, in 2018, January 2018. So we connected, uh, started talking about different things. And Dan Clovis was uh, another, he, uh, they actually ended up hiring him on, bringing him on as part-time. And uh, so it's pretty exciting to see him be able to, to land on with United Rentals. He's doing well. I think he's in line probably for a promotion here soon with them. He's been working for them for almost a, over, a little bit over a year. Um, yeah, so there's, there's quite a bit of stories. I can keep going on and on uh, in a short period of time. Um, and, you know, I, I just stay in contact with all of these guys. That's all it with this 2019 senior class. I think there was only two athletes that didn't. There were 16 of them, and I think only 14 or 13 didn't work out. But of those three that didn't work out, one's working at Nike, another one's working for Enterprise. Uh, the other one is actually um, going through the interview process with Riverside County probation officers or so working in the jail. So he'll be doing that. Uh, so, so the 13 right now that we're on a waiting period. Um, and so that's the other thing is just understanding the process. Um, if you've never been through the process. So I understand that I really can't do much with them for the next month um, until after uh, uh, the draft day. And they go through the signing period of like undrafted free agents to see where everybody gets placed and, and even then, it's still another two, three weeks out after that. And they actually have to come with the terms of like, okay, I'm, I, I got to hang up the piece. I got to find something now. And so it's just being patient. But the reality of it is, is just being there for them when that time comes. Even though they're not here on campus anymore, it doesn't mean that we stop helping them or we stop guiding them. So I'm waiting for that, that time to, to be able to catch them. I'm in contact with them always. And so it, it's awesome to be able to bring them that reason. I remember sometime around 2014 meeting Adam Sozman, Marcus McMarion, and Gabe Ovgard were all hanging out. And I approached them and was like, hey, I, I recognize you guys. And I didn't know it at the time, but those three guys have gone on to have very special and different careers. Gabe Ovgard, you know, intercepted Jared Goff in a year, then had to medically retire and did some special things in Corvallis. He got married. Marcus McMarion had a successful career at Fresno State. You just told the story of Adam Sozman after he finished he was a safety at Oregon State. And it, it's crazy the stories that you don't know yet are going to happen of all these athletes. And you get to see that firsthand, all the guys who are currently playing. And who knows what they're going to do five years, 10 years, 30 years down the line. You get to, to kind of have your hands on, you know, those stories yeah. and see them, which is, I'm sure, pretty cathartic and compelling. And, and it's a, it yeah. seems like the perfect fit. Of all the people to be in this job, it seems like this was kind of cut out exactly for Alexis Serna. <laughs> Uh, when I saw it was posted in 2012, um, they told me that they had some, that they, 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 they were going to look for somebody with a little bit more experience. Um, but from that moment on, I knew that that was my dream job. That that's what exactly what I needed to be doing. Um, so to be able to be in that, it, it's awesome. You brought up a name, Gabe Ovgard. Um, I have a fun little story about him as well. Uh, so he actually wasn't on the team. He was studying abroad. Uh, and one of his buddies, one of the guys on the team, I it might have been Trent Moore, um, was like, hey, like, Gabe's coming back to the state soon. He, he might need a little bit of help. And so I actually reached out to Gabe and said, hey, I would love to connect. I heard that you're coming back to the States. What are you looking at? Uh, and guided him through the process as well. Um, so through my he, – he ultimately wanted to work at Nike. He's done an internship there. Uh, and after poking around and doing a little research, I found um, Nike experts on demand. And they like to hire college graduates, especially athletes. And so I reached out to them. 
kind of blind emailed the guy and said, Hey, I got an athlete. Would love to connect you with him. Would you mind connecting with them? And the guy said, sure. Connected uh, Gabe uh, to the, the high, one of the managers there. And they started talking and that's how Gabe got to start on as a, as a seasonal employee. And then eventually in August, he got brought on as a black badge full-time uh, Nike employee. So it was, uh, and the funny thing is through all this process, I didn't meet, Gabe in person until the summer of 2019 and so we started working in uh, December of 2018 but that that's really what it's about it's just that beaver connection regardless of when and where you were here I, I'm willing to help um, so it was fun to be able to help them um, since then my goal was actually I, I recognized that Gabe was a, a rock star so I was like, you know what, if I can get Gabe in here and they see how awesome it is, they're going to come reach out to me. And that's kind of what has happened is that they've actually reached out a few times and said, hey, do you have any athletes looking to get into Nike right now? Um, so I'm very appreciative of Gabe who's going in there and killing it. We actually got Charles Oconquo. I helped him get in there as well. So he's working with Nike experts on demand. Charles wasn't even on the team. He was actually getting his master's. And so he was looking to get into Nike. So we helped, I helped him along uh, that path as well. Um, so I'm very appreciative of that starter that Gabe was able to create. Um, and so I stay close contact with his hiring managers um, and try to connect and plug our athletes in there whenever we can. Well, Beaver Nation really has each other's backs. I mean, you're emailing people and you haven't even met Gabe face to face and, <laughs> and you're uh, reaching out, which is, is awesome. Let me finish it up just because I've taken so much of your time and thank you for, for being so generous with that. Normally, I, I finish with, you know, what advice would you give yourself you know, your 18 year old self, but it seems like you already touched on so many life lessons. If anyone is listening to this and hasn't picked up on a couple of things and you haven't <laughs> been listening. So instead of asking that, I'd say, if you need to go back and listen to the first part, listen to that. So instead I'll, I'll finish with a more fun, lighthearted question. If you were uh, over on pro throw field to put yourself in research and you're attempting a hundred PATs right now, how many, how many do you make? Or maybe we'll make a little tougher, like a, maybe a 40 yard field goal. What would be, what would be your percentage? Let's say it's down the middle, 40 yards. What, what would be your percentage? I'm glad you went with 40 because I don't think I can go any further than that. <laughs> um, I actually did pull out the, the, actually uh, the cleats the other day and hit a few kicks. And I would still say, I'd still stay, stick around the 90 percentage. Um, nice. it, uh, it, it's just one of those things that for me, uh, it just, I, I was a student of the game. And so there, now that I'm older and I haven't done it, I'm not as flexible. There's little things that I do, but I know, I know how to control my body enough to, to still stay consistent, but they're going to be like squeaking over the crossbar from like 40, but it'll, it'll still, they'll still go. <laughs> That's impressive. Uh, Alexis, thank you so much for your time, all you're doing in Corvallis for all the athletes. Uh, I really appreciate everything you've talked about, and I hope to get some of the athletes you just mentioned. They'll, they'll be future podcast guests, I hope, too. So a lot of great stories, and thanks so much for, for coming on the podcast. Thank you. I appreciate you having me on here. Well, I don't think I need to sum up that interview very much. It would almost be a disservice to Alexis to try to whittle it down to anything smaller than all the anecdotes and stories but it is amazing how, and this is part of the reason for this podcast, to explore the identity of these athletes for something that meant so much to them, of what sports is in their meaning and value of who they are as people, is what happens when that all goes away, when it all ends. They've got to figure out something else in life. And Alexis clearly saw that and felt that when he got denied by the Corvallis Police Department, when he missed the PATs against LSU, when he wanted to play in the NFL and didn't get a chance time and time again. He's been rejected and he's bounced back 
and now he's helping other athletes figure out those same life lessons. My thanks to Alexis for joining me and a generous amount of his time. Also like again to mention Convoy of Hope, that charity doing so much good work, Tornberg and Larson LLC, and uh, go treat yourself to a donut from Benny's Donuts. That's the one that Alexis likes the most. And uh, you deserve it. At least I know Alexis deserves it. All right. This has been the Beaver Tales podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. Lots of good stories to come. I'm Josh Warden signing off. Until next time.